This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I had someone last week that was visiting uh, that said one of their favorite things about uh, my sermons, and I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to be encouraging, was the fact that I always talk about my titles. Uh, I was like, oh, oh well, okay. Uh, so and now I feel bad if I don't talk about my titles. I mean, there's people out there that really want me to talk about my titles. I think it's more a humorous point to people that they notice that I always think about my titles. And I do. My titles are very important. And I'm not that impressed with the title. It's a very good title, but I'm not going to brag about it. You know, sometimes I'll actually sort of brag uh, about my titles like I really like this title. Uh, however, it's, it's a hard one to, to name. And so it's called With a Personal Touch. And it sounds a little soft around the edges, which is why you get Eric, you know, maybe not feeling like it's this epic, manly title. But it's really good. And there is a dimension to the spiritual life where we recognize the personal touch of God. And there's, it's, it's an interesting thing because if you were to talk about how you have been impacted by God, it wasn't just because, you know, a big book, you know, known as the Bible went and dust flew around the room when it landed on your desk. It's somehow that the words in that book were communicated to you in a very personalized way. And what's interesting is in the Christian life, if we're going to reach this world out there, it's not because we stick a big dusty book on the culture and dust goes flying around and we're like, see, hey, take that. That's the word of God for you. It's that that word is administered in a very personal way. And ironically, we participate in that on both sides of that. We are the recipients of this personal touch, but we're also the ones that are going to reach out and personally touch. And in and through that, God personally touches the people of this earth. And so it's, this gospel comes with a personal touch. So life lesson for Eric Ludi: Make it personal when you speak. So we're going to rewind the clock back to the days when Leslie and I used to travel all over. The world is literally what we did. And we used to travel most weekends out of the year. And I remember I was a part of a church back in Longmont, Colorado, but that church never saw us because we were always gone on weekends. And so it was this rare thing when we would be sitting in the in the congregation on a Sunday, it was always a big deal. And usually we'd get even announced from the pulpit. It's like, Eric and Leslie are here. You know, it's like sort of awkward. But that's how rare it was. And we were almost always in a different church on a Sunday or traveling on a Sunday. And so when we used to travel and speak, I, I remember having this, first of all, I'm a, I'm a personal character. I like people. I like to know people. But I stumbled upon upon something that had a unique power to it. And that is, when we would be speaking, most people would come not because they wanted to hear Eric and Leslie Ludi, but because of the topic. It was on relationships, romance, sexuality, and, you know, it's just like the the radar went, and everyone was very interested. And so we would pack even arenas or auditoriums. It was huge audiences we would oftentimes have. 
And so there's always this green room. And so when you become a speaker or a musician or one of those types of characters, you end up discovering that there's these rooms called green rooms. And they're not always green, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Uh, but it's the concept of the holding place for the talent before they come out onto the stage. And so say you know, Leslie and I are in the green room, and I would always say to her, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go out and meet some people. And remember, people oftentimes didn't even know who we were at this time. But I would go down, and, and I would just start in the front row, and I would make my way across, and I would just meet people and get their names. And I would make my way back, and usually, you know, the event's about to start. So maybe I got three or four rows back, and I would ask people, you know, what brought you here? Uh, are you excited about being here? And, of course, since they didn't know who I was, they're like, no, my mom drugged me here. I'm like, I have a hunch you're going to have a great time. And so they didn't know who I was. I was just Eric. That's how I introduced myself. Well, my name's Eric. And then when I would walk out onto the stage to speak, I mean, without exception, I, I mean, I could look through those first three rows and you're just, the, the people would be like, what? And they'd be looking at their mom like, that's the, that's the guy. And that personal touch had such an impact upon those first rows. When we would get done with the message, those people that I had personally touched the percentage of them on their faces before God was extraordinary. Statistically, you would say, Eric, you need to talk with every single person in that arena. I know. I just don't know how to do that, right? I don't have the time for that. I don't have the capacity for that. However, when I reached out and personally knew someone's name, and when I'm giving the message and I bring up that person's name, I was talking with Ryan uh, down here uh, and you know, before we started. Ryan is suddenly like, Who, what? And he is listening to every word I'm saying. And it's personalized to Ryan. And as a result, Ryan is going to receive it, not just as it's a, it's a mass uh, communication to this huge pile of people, but that it's a communication from Eric Ludy to him. Here's what I'm going to say, guys. It worked. It was powerful. And so I recognize this dimension in ministry is that knowing someone's name and giving a personal touch to that person made an impact and readied them to hear at a different level. Okay, now if you follow the trajectory of how my life has gone and even how we start out a semester at Ellerslie, you'll know a lot about why we started doing that. You know, where we have the table set up at a banquet and our entire staff is going to go around and we're going to meet everyone personally, and our goal is to learn everyone's name so that through the semester, we know everyone in that group by name. That's where it started, and I'm going to call it a life lesson. Make it personal when you speak. Another life lesson, make it personal when you lead. Now, this is based on the same premise, but not always is it just that I'm speaking to a large group, but as a leader, I have those around me that need to feel known and if they don't feel known, it's interesting, but the same impact can happen as if you're talking to a large group without any personalization. There is something about it as a leader where you need to personally invest, personally know the circumstances of those around you, make sure you know their name and know how to spell it. I, I pronounced Donna Weber's name as Donna Weber for about four or five years. I don't know what it was. So <clears throat> forgive me, Donna. Uh, that's a public uh, confession right there is what that's called. Life lesson, make it personal when you read. So, again, this is another life lesson. When you're reading the scripture, you could interpret it as if God is just speaking to the Jews of the first century. 
You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, he's talking to the old, back in the olden days, to the Israelites when they're wandering through the wilderness. Oh, yeah, and he's talking, and, yeah, and it's true. He is. However, the Holy Spirit is after something. As you are reading that, yes, he's the one that carried along the writer of that scripture, which was written directly to that audience back in the wilderness or back in ancient Judea. However, he wants to take those words and bring them to you personally. And so when you read and when you start approaching the Bible, you need to know that the Spirit of God is desirous to put your name in it. And so when you learn to do that, when you learn to agree with the Holy Spirit when you approach Scripture, it brings it to life. It makes it tangible. It makes it real. It's not just a conviction for Ananias and Sapphira and the watching church. It's a conviction for you when you read the story. The Spirit of God wants to lift that ancient story and apply it to you. And he might say, Ananias, or if you're a lady, Sapphira. And we're like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Immediately there's a conviction and a a desire to repent because the ancient text has been lifted up and made very fresh in us. Our name is associated with it. It is our story. It is our soul that he's after. And if you're not approaching scripture that way, everything's going to fall dead. It's going to be dry. Knowing facts, but not knowing him. This is such a strange problem in the church. And I'm not sure exactly if we sponsor it as leaders, like somehow things we say, it's like you're not supposed to know him, you're supposed to just know about him. I can't imagine anyone saying that, right? And yet our default is to know about God and to not know God. How, how does that work? And yet it's, it's like easier territory. I, I don't know if it's just the human side of us that gravitates because there's no conviction when you just know about something. There's conviction when you know something and you know it personally and you know it's real to you. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's good that I bring that scripture up every now and then, because for my soul, it is an important litmus test. Am I doing things, even bold things, even big things in the name of Jesus, but not in stride in a relationship with the living God? Why am I doing it? What is this? Is, do I know him? Does he know me? I don't want the words, I never knew you, Eric, to be spoken this direction. I want to be known and I want to know him. So as the body of Christ, this is a primary in our walk with God, which is why I'm bringing it up afresh. As far as a life lesson, this is just a foundational, elementary one that I don't want us to gravitate away from and lose sight of. Jesus came and did a very personal work for you. And he desires you to very personally receive that work, respond to that work, and be changed by that work. And he desires you to grow up in the faith in a very personal way, knowing him, talking with him, sharing your heart, your life, your mind with him. And he wants to share his life with you. You see, this is Christianity. It's not us just knowing some facts and some data and passing some test, true or false test, about the living God. 
You could have all the answers correct and miss out on knowing him. We do not want to know just about someone. We want to know him. This is extracted from a sermon I gave quite a long time ago. Some of you will recognize it. It was called The Simplitist. Got me in a lot of trouble. I had a lot of flack from that message. You go back and listen to it. It's a great one. Uh, and, but I'm going to call this, if we were all taking a class called Absurdity 101, okay? This is like one of the first lessons many of us have in Christianity. And yet it's off. It's wrong. It's the wrong direction. So let's go through this. What is lost when truth is no longer a person, but rather a collection of facts to be inspected and or questioned? What if I approach the humble, gentle, holy, merciful Savior, his arms outstretched to embrace me and to draw me near in fellowship, but instead of entering into his arms and knowing him as a person, as a friend, as a bridegroom, as a Lord, I stop about three feet from him and begin to stare. Hmm, I say to myself, so this is Jesus. I then proceed to take out a handy little notebook that I keep for just such occasions, thumb-click the top of my writing pen, lick my lips, and begin to scribble down data that I'm observing. Medium height, I write down in my notebook. Brown hair, brown beard, nicely trimmed. Laughing blue eyes, bright big smile. Wait a minute, what's that? He seems to be saying something. I can't, make, I can't quite make it out. It sounds like, put down your pad of paper, Eric, and just come to me. Note, he surprisingly doesn't have an accent. Size 13 shoes, strong athletic build, olive skin. There he goes again, talking. He's saying something akin to seek to know me, Eric, not just details about me. Note, it's fascinating that his voice is clear, but his meaning is difficult to understand. Another note to self, study Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek so that I can figure out what he is saying. It's probably something very mysterious. His clothing is undoubtedly kingly. His body from the waist downward is a flame of fire, so I can't quite make out the colors of his chosen clothing style. His whole upper body is shrouded in rainbow. Oh, he's talking again. Hmm. That's interesting. When his mouth moves, the rainbow about him doesn't move at all. He's still talking, and I'm just absolutely mystified in watching the glimmer of his gold embroidery as his chest heaves. Okay, now he's finally stopped talking. Hmm, that's odd. His eyes are no longer laughing. In fact, there are tears in them that appear very similar to human tears. Note to self, check to see if it's theologically possible for Jesus to have tears before publishing these observations. All in all, there is a lot of interesting data here to ponder. Note, I'm disconcerted over the fact that Billy Bob last week declared that Jesus wears five crowns on his head because I count six. How dare he diminish the sovereignty of God? Well, back to the lab. Maybe I can make this a regular field trip to come and observe and figure out all that is to be known about Jesus Christ. Someone can know the truth and not really know the truth. Now, if you're hearing that via podcast, you're missing out on my great graphic. You know, where the first no, someone can know. It's a little teeny little no. In the human sense, you can know the truth, but not really huge caps, N-K-N-O-W, know the truth. What is Jesus after? He wants the supernatural version of knowing. That soul-on-soul, spirit-on-spirit version where you know the King of Kings. You know him. He's your delight. I've oftentimes, back when I was a very young Christian, I used to envision this situation of being brought to my, uh, my death. It was like at the gallows or at a chopping block, you know, something like that in my imagination. And uh, I was asked by the executioner, you know, you need to deny Christ or you will die. And what should my thought process be? Deny Christ? <laughs> Wait a minute. 
You're, you're wanting me to deny Christ? He's the one that gave everything for me. He's the one that sacrificed his life so I could even have life. He's my closest friend. He's my greatest love. And you want me to deny him? Come on. And the moment you kill me is the moment I'm in his presence. If anything, the reason I'm standing here is to ask you to get to know him. Come on, instead of wearing that black hood over your head all day long in such depression, why don't you whip that off and get to know the king of the universe? Watch me die and you'll recognize you want to follow. Processing through those things, how do I respond? Do I love Jesus in that regard that the request for me to forsake him would sound absurd, would sound ridiculous? If someone asked me to betray my wife, how would that sound to me? If I have a deep love for my wife, the answer is not on your life. You see, that love bond of knowing actually answers all the questions. Do you know Jesus? Discipleship. So often the believer needs to have their name injected into the text. So I've watched this. You know, Ellerslie has been going for 12 plus years, and we have recognized something. I can give a message from up here, and a certain percentage of the audience will just get it, and they can personalize it. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is able to reach them, speak it to them, they see it, they hear it. But there's a percentage that struggle with that, and it's nothing that they're doing wrong. Sometimes they just need that extra help, sort of like that man that was sick with the palsy or had paralyzed uh, legs, and he couldn't get to Jesus in Capernaum. What did he need? He needed four to pick him up and carry and then climb up on the roof and break the roof and drop him down. You never want to be the guy sick with the palsy, right? It's like, oh, God, don't give me that problem. Give me the shriveled arm, I, you know, that I can actually walk myself. I don't want to need the body. And yet, for whatever reason, God has done this where part of the personalization process is sometimes having a need to be carried. And we have carried many people at Ellerslie, if you want to say it that way. We, we don't really carry them, uh, you know, stick them on some carrying device and lift them. However, we've done the process of carrying them to the feet of Jesus symbolically. And one of the key things that happens when we have personal time with someone is we share the same exact thing we just shared from the stage, same thing. It wasn't a reinvention of truth, and yet it involves their name. And when they hear the same truth with the personal touch, it's incredible. But suddenly they're like, I see it. What? What is that? It's how the Holy Spirit works. You see, any time that you are really getting it, it's because the Holy Spirit is personalizing it to you, which is why it is so critical that we understand this and we pursue this and we open ourselves up to it. And when we are studying the scriptures, when we're listening to a message, we're saying, Spirit of God, do your work. Instead of, oh, Eric Ludy's cranium and my high IQ, do your work. These things are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually acquired. They're spiritually accessed. We need the Holy Spirit to personalize these things to us. So discipleship, so often the believer needs to have their name injected into the text. When you're studying something, I know it might seem like a funny exercise to do, but personalize it. Allow your name to enter into the storyline. Logos and rhema, two Greek words. So if you don't know what they are, that's, that's okay. Uh, but they're both going to be translated the same way, the word. So 
the one that we're most common, or most familiar with, I should say, and it is most common in Scripture, is logos. And typically, as English-speaking people, we'd say logos, right? That's probably how you've heard it said. And yet, the logos, as it is uh, revealed in Scripture, is Jesus Christ himself. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Whoa! That's a huge statement. And so what we see is the entirety of the revelation of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in this one man, Jesus, in the Logos. So that, that word of God has been, that has been revealed, that the Holy Spirit carried along writers to write down, which then forecasted and prophesied and laid the foundation of understanding, saying, this is how you will know my Messiah when he comes. He will match this. And then Jesus is going to be called the Logos, and he is going to fulfill all of that text. It's incredible. And so the Logos is a very, very important word in our understanding of Christianity, in our understanding and approach to Scripture. And yet, what I'm going to say about the Logos, which is very, very important, is it's common and available and the same for all of us. In other words, it's not like you have a unique logos over here and I have a unique logos over here. It's the same for all of us. It's common. In fact, it's even written in the New Testament in the Koine Greek, which is the common language of the time. And so the Jews really struggle with that. And there's, there's people that really still struggle, especially Hebrew lovers, that really struggle with the fact that the Holy Spirit revealed the New Testament in Koine Greek. In fact, there's, there's certain people that think that, no, the Holy Spirit revealed it in Hebrew, and then it got translated into Koine Greek. No, 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 it was actually in Koine Greek from the beginning on purpose, which is a statement of its common nature. It is available to all, meant to be understood by all. So this other word, rhema. Now, to be honest, for those of you that grew up in uh, more charismatic uh, environments, you may have heard that word. And so as a result, on the conservative end, of biblical studies, you have a tendency to want to ignore the word rhema. It's like, oh, no, we don't talk about rhema in our church. Well, that doesn't help either, okay? To, to, as A.W. Tozer says, oftentimes we make an equal and opposite error by backing into our belief system, by seeing a misuse of something, so you actually back into the opposite. Rhema is a very, very important concept in Scripture. However, in a sense, it has been taken hostage by a certain segment of the church to talk about the Holy Spirit speaking uh, and, oh, I have the word uh, for the day. And then it almost gets elevated to the level of the logos, right? And so we have people in the world today that actually are promoting the notion that the ideas that they're getting, the rhema that they're getting from God right now is higher than the ancient text, okay? I'm not going to mention any names. We'll just let that hang out there. And I'm going to say, uh-uh, nope, those are fighting words, you know, and I'm going to get my boxing gloves on, okay? Because the protection of the logos is everything. The integrity of the common revelation. How am I going to know if a rhema is actually true? Because it matches with the common revelation. That's, that means all of us contest it. All of us contest this thing called rhema. So I'm going into some awkward territory by bringing up Rama. However, it doesn't need to be awkward, okay? I, I talk about the Holy Spirit freely now, but there was a whole season of my life where I had a really difficult time even mentioning the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I saw the abuse. And then I had to go through a process of realizing that's God, <laughs> all right? He's safe, 
The very nature of God is revealed in and through the Holy Spirit. The reason I even know Jesus is because the Holy Spirit revealed him to me. All right, the whole scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit to show me Jesus. All right, he's safe. Well, now I'm, I'm landed. My feet are strong on that. And now I'm like going into more dangerous territory like Rhema. Oh, no. Actually, it's not dangerous territory. It's very, very important. And it totally matches the theme of what we're talking about, which is the personalization of the scriptures the personalization of the reality of the unseen realm, the work of the kingdom of heaven, the gospel itself, to our individual lives. So Luke 1.38, and Mary, you guys know Mary, the mother of Jesus, said, remember to that angel, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And that word for word there isn't logos, it's rhema. And so, obviously, this is a very, very important moment uh, in the grand story that we understand, even as the gospel, that God is going to become a fetus. He is going to be a baby in a girl's womb. I mean, it's just like flabbergasting. And yet, what is happening is the word is coming to Mary, and she is submitting to it. And that word is what is going to be called a rhema. However, how does she know it's the word of God? How does she know that that rhema is, in fact, from God? Because it perfectly matches the logos. So here's a help sheet. The logos, what does it say? The Messiah will come to save. It is the general message to all of us. The Old Testament is, is declaring the Messiah is coming. This is how you will recognize him. But what is the rhema? The rhema says the Messiah will be in your very womb. That's what it's saying to Mary. That's a very personalized touch to this. That's a pretty astounding reality. Imagine trying to swallow that one. Because you're one of the Jewish people that has been waiting a long time for the, the prophesied Messiah, and now it's going to be in your womb. See, here's what rhema is. It is the personalization of the logos to our lives. It never contradicts the Logos. It is the extension of the Logos into our lives so that we know how personally we reveal this grand Logos to this world. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Uh, excuse me, Paul, but that's also my gospel. I'm not sure what you're thinking that it's your gospel. Hey, this is our gospel. That's how we could argue it. This is our gospel. Yet Paul is going to use the pronoun my. My gospel? Isn't that an interesting statement? Do you have a gospel? Well, if you do, it better not contradict the gospel. The logos is going to set the pace for the gospel. Paul is going to derive his gospel from the logos, but it's going to be very personalized to him, where Paul is going to end up concluding, this is mine. This is mine. Do you have your own gospel? That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Not your own rendition, your own definition of it, but your gospel, the one that saved you, the one that you have to give to others so that they can be saved. It's not different than the Logos or the rest of us. It's just that it's yours. It's owned, if you will. So another translation says, this is my gospel. So here's another way of understanding Logos and Rhema. The Logos Jesus revealed to all 
He's the same for all. So Jesus is going to be commonly revealed to all. There's not like one Jesus over here, a different Jesus over here. He doesn't have different ethnicities, you know, where he's, he's a white one here and then he's a black one here. He's Jesus, okay? And he's the same for all. And yet he's revealed to all and yet never changes, never alters, the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, the rhema is Jesus revealed to you. He's uniquely personal, not in the sense that he's different, it's just that it's a personal relationship. My relationship with every single one of you in here is different than my relationship with someone else. It's a personal relationship, therefore it has unique qualities to it. If I've given you a nickname, it's your nickname. I don't give that same nickname to everyone, right? It's, it's a nickname, right? And so as a result, we all have individual relationships. And that's the same with the kingdom of heaven. I'm one person, however, I have individual relationships. And when you begin to recognize that the God of the universe desires to not just have a logos relationship with all of us, but that he desires to have a rhema relationship with all of us and to walk individually with us, to walk in the cool of the day with us, to have a special relationship with us. And even if, as I would try and describe it, there are certain things that he speaks to me that I don't preach about in, in that sense. Like I have certain numbers that when I see them, they mean something to me. The number 29 means something to me. And you could say, that is weird. Yeah, well, you, you can have your personal relationship with him too, but this is how he speaks to me. There's all sorts of things like that that are meaningful. February 2nd is a very meaningful day in my relationship with God. And February 2nd might just be Groundhog Day to you, but to me, it's a very, very significant day. And I forget that it even is Groundhog Day. Because that's the day that Jesus transformed my life. And so as a result, it's an anniversary and we celebrate it together. And yet you could be missing out on all the celebration going, I didn't know that we were celebrating today. Because it's very personal. It's a rhema relationship as opposed to just a logos relationship. And it is extremely valuable to me. I don't oftentimes preach from my rhema relationship. I preach from the logos that I have. However, if I didn't have a rhema relationship with my God, everything I'm preaching about the logos would be dead. The reason that when I preach about the logos, it has life and vitality to it is because I have a personal relationship with God. And he works with me as an individual. When he convicts me of a sin, it's not just a general conviction, it's a personal conviction. And so as a result, when I administer the Logos, I recognize that all of us are in different places. I don't just say, every single one of you just had this thought in your head. You'd be like, excuse me, but I didn't. You see, it's very, very important to recognize that though the Logos is for all of us, it's applied individually to our unique situations. The conviction is individual conviction. It is personalized by the Holy Spirit. And so when you only have an understanding of a Logos relationship with God, and you don't understand that he desires to lead you and walk you through this life as a shepherd leads his sheep, as a bridegroom leads his bride, you will miss the dimension that truly transforms the inner man and causes us to be converted and changed into the image of the dear son. Have you ever felt like you owned the scriptures? You ever felt like there's territory in scripture and that's like yours? That it's like a plot of land. It's like, hey, hey, that's, that's my scripture there. You ever felt that when someone, like, especially when someone misquotes it, and you're like, hey, that's my scripture. I've known that. It's been my favorite scripture since I was a kid, and you just butchered it. Or they pick some weird, strange translation for it. And you're like, hey, 
That's not the right way of saying it. It's territory that we have. We used to joke about that at Ellerslie that we sort of stake claim to certain scriptures. Like Nathan, the cheater, stuck, you know, struck claim to the entire book of Ephesians. And so every one of us, you know, in the Ellerslie staff is always feeling a little awkward when we get into Ephesians. Like, oh, and we almost like feel way to say, okay, Nathan, is it okay that we like uh, preach out of this? But that's good. You see, that's the way it actually works. We stake claim to different truths and different things because we're owning them. And when you own them, you get identified with them too. Have you ever noticed where you could look around and it's like, yeah, that person's always talking about that one truth. Yeah, because they've staked claim to it. Well, how did they stake claim? The Spirit really stuck claim to them, if you want to say it that way. And so they get it. They understand that truth. It's theirs. And so they get excited about it. And yeah, maybe they need to get some more truths too, because they're sort of stuck on that one. But that's still good. That's still the working of the Holy Spirit in their life. So I remember I had gone with my uncle uh, to, on a tour of the, uh, the Northeast, and we went up, was trying to get me to go to an Ivy League school. And I, I'm, I did have it in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, who's going to pay for this? Uh, but he was very interested in sort of getting me into his world. And so he was taking me up and showing me some old American sites. And we actually then went across the border into Canada to Quebec and he was teaching me about Quebec, and we ate some smelly cheese and talked a little French. And it was a very unique experience for me, right? But I didn't even know Quebec existed before that trip. Then I come back, and I'm in you know, school, and the teacher gets up and pronounces it as Quebec, and then talks about it as if he knows what he's talking about. And all I'm thinking is, I've been there. Okay, I almost wanted to raise my hand and go, buddy, you have no idea what you're talking about. Let me talk, okay? This is my territory. Why? Why was it mine? Because I had set foot upon it. I had smelled the smelly cheese. I had even said, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> I had been there. And so as a result, I felt an ownership of something. And in a strange sense, that's how we work as humans. God desires us to set our feet upon that land of promise. He wants us to take that territory in our soul. He wants to personalize it to us so that we feel like it's ours. And yes, and part of it is recognizing it's not just ours, it's everyone's. Isn't it a funny thing that we're all in, it's called communion, but that's a common union. So you could declare that you're in Christ and then I could say, wait a minute, I'm in Christ as if it's an exclusive thing, right? I could be the only one in Christ. I mean, how many people can fit in Christ? So if you were to think about it, we're all like compacted in there. And there's Mike Coleman, you know, and his head's right here. And I'm like, this is awkward. Uh, and he was like, I'm in Christ. Oh, I'm in Christ. And we're like, well, we're both in Christ, obviously. Could you give me a little elbow room? You see, we're in this together. It's a common union. We have communion and fellowship in Christ. We are sharing something common but we all have a very unique connectivity to God where it feels like we're the only one. And yet we're not the only one. And we don't want to be the only one. We want this to be a, a, a body thing. But isn't it amazing that our God can make us feel special? And he can make us feel like we're in the apple of his eye, which we are. Even though he has billions in this earth that he is tending to. The personalization of the gospel to our souls is so absolutely critical. We don't want to just have a Logos relationship with God. Praise God that we do. That he is 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a logos statement. But when it becomes a rhema statement, it's Eric, I so love you that I gave Jesus so he could purchase you through his shed blood. Eric, do you realize that that suffering was for you? You see, it's a personal thing, and if it doesn't become a personal thing, we lose the essence of what he came to give us. So may we never diminish the personal touch that God desires to bring. So just like me with Quebec, Canada, Jesus Christ, hey, I know him. You ever had someone bring up a name, you know, and you hear a conversation over there and they're talking about someone, you're like, hey, I know that person. You see, it's an ownership. Do you have that ownership in your walk with Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Because even if there's a question mark as I'm saying that, I know exactly what to encourage you to go after. Jesus, I want to know you. I want you to know me. Whatever stands in the way, melt it down. Because I want the real thing. Isaiah 40, 11 through 12. So I broke this up into two parts because I'm going to do something, and this is how I'm finishing, by the way, so this is my finishing touch to this. The first part, verse 11, says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That's an incredible statement about the nature of our God, of how he cares for his people. And so when you actually begin to realize that you're one of those lambs, it is deeply impacting. It transforms. It's just like, it's that piece of us that must hear this. We need to understand this, and that's what we're waiting to hear and to understand. There's all sorts of false counterfeit ways where the human life gets touched. It's like, oh, that means so much to me. But this is what touches us at the deepest level. No, he wants to carry you. He wants to gather you to his bosom. You, he wants me. Have you ever uh, understood the concept where someone could teach someone, even on the streets of Fort Collins, about the love of Jesus? Jesus loves you. And then someone comes up to them in church, puts their hand on their, their shoulder, and leans in. This is the same verse that was about the love of Jesus. They lean in and, and whisper, I think God just wants you to know that he loves you. And that person will melt down and sob in the corner for a couple hours. Why? Because even though they intellectually know that God loves, they for whatever reason need to know that God loves them. They need not just the logos, they need the rhema relationship with God. So look at this other part of this scripture. So I just read you verse 11. I'll, I'll read it again just so we have the flow. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now, this next one is so outrageously different in size. The first one was intimate. And this next one is like, and who is the one we're talking about? Who has gathered the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Uh... Don't you feel like when you see the awesomeness and the hugeness of God, you feel very small? I don't think that's bad. I just think that we need to have this dynamic of logos, rhema going. 
we need the centrifugal force, not just of the grandness of God, but the fact that this grand God humbled himself, took on the form of a human, suffered and died for you. Now that's when it strikes home. So what I'm going to do is sort of a strange thing to do, but look at this. I've inverted the flow of the scripture. So I corrected it over in my reference. You'll notice it says Hebrews 40, 12 to 11, right? This is a rare thing to do. I recognize that, but I sort of like to do rare things. And so I put a little swap signal in there just for those of you. Of course, if someone's getting this on podcast, they don't see it. But I'm going in reverse order in the scripture. I'm going to first read verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who is that? Who is that one that has done such magnificent things, created the heavens and the earth? Uh, That very one who did all those amazing things is the one who will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He's not just Logos. He's Ramah. He doesn't just want to communicate to us with the grandness of his logos. Praise God, he does. But he also wants to bring it to a personal level to us where we know it, where we understand it, where our name is in it, where he has visited us in the front row of our life. And he said, no, this this message is for you. And if you don't know that, that's the number one thing I want you to go after. An impersonal connectivity with the God of the universe is not what he came to give us. He came to give us a very personal touch. He desires to save us as individuals, not just us as a whole, but us as individuals that then make up the whole. He's after you. Father, only you can bring about this understanding, this grace, this power, this intimacy, this love. Lord, I pray that you would set our foot on the streets of Quebec spiritually and that we would smell the smells of your kingdom. We would speak the language of your kingdom, that we would hear it in the depths of our being, that we would know that the grand God of the universe that created the heavens and the earth is pursuing us. And Lord, that we would hear the invitation, the personalized message from heaven to us and that we would respond. And Lord, for those of us that have walked in a relationship with you for years, I pray that we would refresh that intimacy and that we would not allow just a Logos relationship to rule, but that we would allow you to take that Logos and bring it personally into our lives afresh. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.